0: Well, um, thanks thanks so much for having me. It's been a real uh, pleasure to be here today um, and uh, to meet a few of you. And so I'm very grateful to the Rural Bible Network uh, for inviting me. And I'm really thrilled. I've I've known about this ministry for uh, a few years, uh, having heard about it from Chris over the years. And uh, uh, it's wonderful to be here on your 10th anniversary and uh I just want to give thanks to god for um, for you, for men and women uh, who know um, uh, who know the master's voice, who know uh, the shepherd's voice, and who long to hear him and to receive what He has for us from his word. There are not many people like that <laughs> uh, uh, in the world, and uh, so it's a great blessing and joy to be with you and uh I will add my prayers to yours that your numbers here will greatly increase in the years to come. So thanks for having me. Let's pray. Father, we are so conscious of your many kindnesses towards us, though we are so undeserving and so unable, so disabled, uh, and yet, in your mercy, you raise us up, you give us uh, life and life in Christ, and it pleases you even to make us uh, ambassadors of your gospel heralds of the mysteries uh, of the uh, of the gospel, proclaimers of the excellencies of christ we uh, we rejoice in him and all that he has done for us, all that he is doing in the world today and in our own lives and all that will be in the coming new creation when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We, your people, lift our hearts to you, Father, in praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm uh, stuck because I've got handwritten notes uh, which I can't read without putting my glasses on but if I do that then I can't see who I'm talking to. <laughs> so this is going to be an irritating little while <laughs> for one of us. <laughs> uh, well it's a surprise to many uh, to discover that the Bible reveals a God uh, who is not distant and absent but rather is intimately involved in the world that he has made and the cosmos which scripture says is sustained by his powerful word. Uh, the, uh, there's recently been some research undertaken in the United States about the faith of, uh, self-identifying, um, Christian Americans under the age of 25. And, uh, their beliefs were sought and categorized and, um, uh, the researchers have come up with a phrase to describe the faith of young American Christians and the phrase they have come up with is moralistic, therapeutic deism meaning that uh, their their good works are not motivated by love but by a sense that God expects them to live good lives. They're moralistic, They're not fruit bearing. Uh, it's therapeutic, they have a relationship with God because they think it will do them some good and so people who think that a relationship with God will do them some good Enter into one, and if they think they don't need it, then they don't worry about it. It's therapeutic, their approach to faith in Christ, not a, not a living relationship, shepherd and sheep, king and subject, but therapist and client. And it's deistic, uh, which was, in some ways, mainline Protestantism from about 1850 to 1950, uh, which is to say that God has set up the world and removed himself from it and he's really left it in our hands and what now matters is that we get on with the business that God has done, uh, that God has left to us um, rather than seeing what scripture teaches that God is involved in his world. Is that what scripture teaches us? He sends thunder and lightning, Job says. Snow and sunshine. He causes grass to grow and crops to flourish. Psalm 104, 135, Matthew 5. He feeds the birds of the air. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge, Jesus says. He causes kings and nations and rulers to rise and fall, says Job. From one man he created all the nations on the face of the earth, according to the Apostle Paul. God has seen all the days of a person's life before one of them came to be, the psalmist says. What appear to us to be chance or accident or insignificant, the, the dice that is rolled, the die that is cast, the lot that is cast, the hairs on our heads, are known by him. He protects his people and disciplines them. He supplies what is needed. He hears the prayers of his people watches over them, remembers them and answers them. His kingdom rules over all, says Psalm 103, and he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. The Bible presents us with a picture of God who is intimately, personally, constantly involved with what he has made and everything he has made, he loves. And this is true in our own lives as well. God is ruler over all. Not everything goes well. Much is hard or painful or confusing. Most of the time, in most of the comings and goings of our lives, We can't see God's hand. We can't trace his finger. And yet Christian people will say, God was in that. God has been there all along. Sometimes we see what some of it was for. Often we don't. But we trust that all of it is under his hand for his good purposes in our lives. There are alternatives to this. Moralistic therapeutic deism is one alternative. With Richard Dawkins, we can simply deny that any human life has purpose or direction or shape or significance beyond itself. We could take the Freudian view of life, that life is driven by the sexual impulse, Or we could take the Marxist view that uh, life is driven by the interplay between capital and labour. Or the market view that it is driven by supply and demand. Or the feminist view that it is driven by the struggle between death-dealing patriarchy and the life-giving feminine. That that's what explains life. We could take the biological view that it's all in our genes or the behaviouralist view that it's all our mother's fault but the Bible teaches something else. God is at work through the decisions we make, the choices we confront, the evil we do as well as the good. He's not absent from the world he made. It isn't just running according to the physical laws he established, but he sustains the whole cosmos by his powerful word and will bring it to an end with a word. Every breath we breathe is a gift from his hand as is the food that sustains us and the seasons as they come and go and the hairs on our head as they grey and fall out and we may cast our cares on him because he cares for us which he cannot do unless he sees us, he knows us and he's with us. He has not abandoned us to fend for ourselves. Neither does he dominate and control us like robots or clockwork bunnies. He is sovereign. We are responsible. We are made in his image and exercise stewardship of the earth for which we must give an account. He is the king and the creator and the judge who brings about everything he plans. And the big theological word for God's work and involvement in all the circumstances of life is providence. To put it simply, God reigns. God's at work not only in the past, but today. He's at work not only in miracles, but in the ordinary. He's at work not only in prophets and priests and kings, but in all his image bearers men and women, rich and poor, young and old. He's not only at work in pastors and preachers and missionaries, he's at work in teachers and bankers and artists and builders and scientists and cooks and carers and mums and dads and grandparents. He's not only at work in the powerful and the beautiful and the competent, he is at work in the poor and the unwell and the broken hearted. He's not only at work in victories and successes and breakthroughs, he's at work in failures and defeats and sufferings. And if God is at work in all this, what is he doing? What is the end to which God is working all history? Ephesians 1 verse 10 that all things in heaven and on earth should be united under the lordship of Christ. Or Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or as Colossians 1 says, that Jesus should be the firstborn over all creation, the head of his body, the church, and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. Or as John sees it and records it in Revelation 21 that there should be a new creation without tears or war or famine or pain in which God will make his dwelling with his people and they will be his people and they he will be their God and Jesus will be the Lamb upon the throne making everything new. And Esther is just a slice, a little window into the unfolding history of the salvation plan of God. Esther is Queen of Persia, but Jewish, though no one in the court knows that. She's called a three-day fast among her people, committed herself to the welfare of her people as she's going to approach her husband, the king, even though to do so risks being put to death. Esther stands in front of the king's hall, seeking to attract the king's attention. When he sees her there without having been summoned, she will be instantly subject to the death penalty unless he holds out his scepter to her and invites her to come in. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached. The king is in a good mood and asks Esther what she desires. He says, in the way of kings who are impressed by their own generosity, you may have up to half my kingdom. Uh, although I think this is probably what we would call spin, or at least a non-core promise. <laughs> Esther invites the king to a banquet. This is a surprise because we thought she was going to ask him to cancel the edict for the destruction of her people as she lost her nerve or does she just subscribe to the view that the way to a king's heart is through his stomach. Whatever it is, she invites the king to a banquet and asks the king to bring Haman with him. Uh, Immediately, we've left the king's hall and entered the banquet chamber in Esther's apartments. For a second time, the king asks Esther what she wants and for a second time she doesn't tell him instead she asks the king and Haman to come to a second banquet when she will reveal her request she seems to have a plan in mind she's certainly displaying courage and wisdom in uh, her approach to her task she embodies the prudence and planning recommended in the book of Proverbs but even wisdom is no guarantee against an evil and powerful enemy, no matter how foolish. She goes to a good evening's rest, presumably, but she's unaware that the delay in making her request to the king is about to put Mordecai at grave risk. Because Haman, we're told, is also in high spirits. He's not only enjoyed a sumptuous meal in the queen's palace, but he's invited to do it again tomorrow. He goes home to his wife Zeresh, and calls over some of his friends to regale them with stories of his glittering achievements and his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways in which the king has honoured him. At this point, you might feel some sympathy for Haman's wife, Zeresh, who has probably heard all of this many times before, and could be presumed to be familiar with the number of his sons. (laughs) But there's one cloud on Haman's horizon. Verse 13, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Haman's wife and friends immediately suggest with casual, uh, callous casualness a brutal solution. Why not impale him on a giant stake? This delighted Haman, we're told. Chapter 5 portrays Esther as a picture of wisdom and Haman as the classic fool. In the Bible, uh, the fool is morally corrupt and potentially dangerous. Esther has successfully manoeuvred into a position where at tomorrow night's banquet she can expect the king to grant her request to save the Jews but in the morning Mordecai may lose his life. But it just so happens that overnight the king is plagued with sleeplessness. And it just so happens that he decides the best way to cure his insomnia is by having the history of the kings of Persia read to him. And it just so happens that the chronicles contain the story of Mordecai, who discovered a plot to kill the king and averted the disaster. And it just so happens that the kings of Persia are renowned for their generosity towards their most trusted servants and allies. And King Xerxes is troubled by his failure to reward Mordecai for his loyalty and faithfulness. By now it's early in the morning when the king inquires whether any of his advisers are available. And it just so happens that Haman has rushed to the court at the crack of dawn to bring his petition regarding Mordecai's execution as the first item of state business for the day. So that when the king requests an advisor, Haman is shown in. And at this point in the story, you're supposed to be smiling. Because the king and Haman, as it turns out, Both want to talk about Mordecai, although for very different reasons. And neither of them knows what the other one is thinking, although Haman thinks he does. Haman is shown into the king's chamber and the king asks him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman naturally concludes that the man the king delights to honor must be himself. And he's so pleased with this, he immediately forgets about Mordecai and starts to dream about what he imagines is about to happen to him. He suggests that the king uh, have the man he delights to honour clothed in one of the king's own royal robes and be placed upon one of his own royal horses and be led by one of the king's nobles through the streets, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. The word honour appears 17 times in the Old Testament, 14 in the book of Esther and most of those occurrences are in this chapter and mostly on the lips of Haman because he is a study of self-exalting pride. C.S. Lewis uh, said the, the root of pride is competitiveness. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man it's the comparison that makes you proud the pleasure of being above the rest and that's Haman well while Haman is still fantasizing about his new royal robe the king predictably takes the advice of his prime minister and commands Haman to do what he has just described for Mordecai God is at work. The tables are turned and God brings down the proud. Once the ritual has been performed, it remains the case that the edict for the destruction of the Jews is still in place. Haman's wife and friends seem to read the wind and are as quick and callous to predict Haman's downfall as they were to plot Mordecai's destruction so that as chapter 6 ends, the king's eunuchs come to take Haman to Esther's second banquet. At this point, no one's future is certain, and everything everything is in the balance. Well, I've got two things I want to mention at this point, and they're both listed under point 1 on page 5 of your outline. Firstly, the God of coincidences. Uh, Joyce Baldwin, who's written a commentary in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, uh, has coined the phrase in relation to the book of Esther, the god of coincidences, uh, uh, with which the book of Esther is crammed full. Uh, only because Vashti resists the king's uh, insult that Esther comes to the throne. Only because Esther is beautiful does she become only because she is Jewish can she save her people uh, it just so happens that Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king which happens to be written in the king's chronicles um, Haman's lot happens to fall a year away so that there is a great deal of time between the edict and the execution uh, Haman's friends happen to suggest that gallows be built It just so happens that the king is sleepless and it just so happens that he reads about Mordecai not being rewarded. Uh, Peter Adam offers two warnings about the God of coincidences. It's a mistake to think that God only works when coincidences happen because God is at work all the time. It's a mistake to think that God is at work only when miracles happen. People are healed all the time, aren't they? Sometimes they are healed miraculously. Many, many more times they are healed in other ways because God is good and has healed them through medical processes and skilled people. If you miss God working in the ordinary, you'll miss a lot of the working of God. The heavens declare the glory of God day after day, all the time. God preserves us all the time. We eat and drink and breathe and have our being at God's hand all the time. For some, the times appointed are times of sadness and disappointment and struggle. And for some, today, The time appointed is one of expectation and excitement. For some, there is the eager anticipation of redemption. For others, there is the wrestle with regret, with foolish choices, with personal sins and much, much more. But God has appointed our time and our day. And God supplies faith for today and the time that he has appointed. So we rejoice when God does miracles and coincidences, but we do not despair when he does not. Because we see the great reality of God's constant compassion and loving work all the time. The first mistake would be to think that God can only work in coincidences. And the second would be to think that coincidences are an infallible sign that it is God who is at work. Because Satan can arrange coincidences as well and distract and trick you into thinking that this must be a work of God. And that might have the effect of making you trust in small things. In small coincidences, rather than in the great work of the cross. You might end up valuing your car park more than you value adoption into God's family by the blood of Jesus. I know Jesus died for my sins, but I really knew that God loved me when this happened. That would be a mistake, wouldn't it? He loved you most and he loved you best when he gave his son for you upon the cross. Don't let the happy coincidence cloud your vision of the gift of adoption. And then I want to speak about uh, the man the king delights to honour. When we say that we trust that God is at work in good, in sunshine and in cloud, in good times and bad, what possible basis do we have for saying that? Well, we say that we believe that God is at work Even in our tears and sorrow and even in the evil that people do which God does not cause or bless but which cannot exclude his power, we say these things because of the man whom the king delights to honour. God sent into the world his son, Jesus Christ. And the voice from heaven said, This is my son in whom I delight. And he was robed in a royal robe. And a crown was placed upon his head. And he was paraded through the streets and died upon a cross with a sign above his head that proclaimed him King of the Jews. And when the disciples of Jesus began to preach that he was raised from the dead, Lord and Judge of the earth, this is what Peter said. People of Israel, this Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. The betrayal and arrest and scourging and abandonment and crucifixion and death of Jesus was God at work. God worked through evil, jealous, proud, greedy, weak, wicked people who put his son to death to bring salvation and healing and forgiveness and cleansing and adoption and hope to a world under judgment. So we believe what scripture teaches that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither nakedness nor famine nor sword can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that they may be conformed to the likeness of his Son. When death and disease and the devil have done their worst, they win no victory, they score no point, they achieve nothing, for God works and God rules in all things. Well, over the page, the final act. As chapter 7 opens, Haman has been hurried into the queen's apartments by the king's servants. When the king has feasted on Esther's meal and is enjoying his after-dinner wine, he asks her for a second time what requests she wishes to make of him. And ever the one for pomp and circumstance, he asks the question twice over, what is your petition and what is your request? And repeats his grandiose promise of up to half the kingdom, presumably hoping that Esther will come to the party and ask for considerably less. Esther replies in the careful language that dealing with a vain and unpredictable superior requires, if I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you... Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. Now at this moment, two things are going on. For the first time in the story, Esther's Jewish identity has been revealed to the king. Esther has identified herself with her people. It's not clear that the king has understood this, but we know at this point that Haman will have understood it. Esther is not only the queen, she is a Jew. And he, Haman, has issued an edict that all the Jews in the empire be killed. Haman utters no words from this point of the story. We can only imagine the look on his face, like a roux in headlights, I suppose. Esther drives home the point using the same words that Haman had drafted for the edict in verse 4 for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. The king, of course, has no memory of the edict that went out in his name, but Haman surely would have recognised his own cruel words. The king bellows, who is he? Where is he, the man who would dare to do such a thing? Uh, The king clearly is reacting to the fact that someone has had the temerity to threaten the queen's life, uh, and in Persia an attack on the queen's wife did I say wife? The queen? yes wife the queen. an attack on the king's wife is an attack on the king so Esther finally names the adversary and enemy of her people this vile Haman we're told Haman is terrified but still mute the king gets up in a rage and goes out into the garden presumably he wishes to think uh, and for the first time in the story, he will have to decide what to do without the help of advisers. Haman, the arch manipulator of circumstance, makes a fatal error. We're told he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Haman knew how the court of King Xerxes operated better than anyone. He knew that for a man to be in the presence of the king's wife or any member of his harem in the absence of the king was a capital offence. We're not told anything about Esther's assessment of the situation. It's the king's assessment that counts. And ironically, the king enters as Haman appears to be attacking the queen. Will he even molest her when she is with me in the house? The king acts to defend his own pride rather than his innocent citizens. As soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. His fate is sealed. Unlike Esther, who wisely cultivated the friendship of the king's servants, Haman has evidently made more enemies than friends, and Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, doesn't hesitate to chip in with the helpful observation that there is a stake set up at Haman's house. He even goes to the trouble of adding the interesting detail in verse 9 that Haman had the pole set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king and was so recently honoured by him. Always happy to receive advice, even from a eunuch, the king doesn't hesitate. Impale him on it. Uh, Well, four observations on this story. And uh, I've given you blanks. I haven't told you a joke all day. A priest, a rabbi, an imam and an alligator walk into a pub. The bartender says, what is this, some kind of joke? Right. Four observations to close the story. Fill in the blanks. God has an indestructible plan to save a people for himself. God has an indestructible plan to save a people for himself. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, the people of the earth join together in harmony and cooperation to exalt themselves. Not all kinds of unity are good. And the unity of human self-exaltation is one of the things the Bible regards as not a good thing. So God confuses their language and the project is abandoned. But in the very next chapter, God makes a promise to Abraham, a promise to give Abraham many descendants to be his God, and through Abraham, to bless every family on earth. That is, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through the descendant of Abraham. That promise is the engine that drives the whole story of the Bible. And it comes to a climax at Pentecost. Because at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out on people from many places and uh, uh, the Spirit is poured out on the disciples and people from many places hear the gospel in their own language. The many languages that produced confusion in Genesis 11 now bring blessing as the gospel is proclaimed. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that the people of God are sometimes attacked by others, as in the days of Esther, and sometimes the people of God are their own worst enemy, rejecting God and falling into idolatry and sin, coming under God's judgment and even conquered by other nations or sent into exile. But neither the sin of God's people nor the opposition and persecution of their enemies can defeat his purpose. The story of the Bible is the story of how God fulfills his plan to have a people who will be his treasured possession, who will bless the nations, who will be delivered from their own sin, and rescued from their enemies. And the story of Esther is one link in that story in which we have come to have a share. Secondly, the difference Jesus makes. Esther points to the way that God will provide for the deliverance of his people once and for all, defeating forever, our adversary and enemy. Esther points us to Jesus and to his greater deliverance. When Esther makes her request to the king, she chooses her words carefully. If I have found favour with you, if it pleases you, if you think it is the right thing to do, wise and deferential and restrained. But eventually her passion for her people overflows and the depths of her concern for them cannot be contained. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And in the last week of his life, Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem and the temple, and he cannot contain the depth of his passion for his people. He weeps, we're told, and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how often have I longed to gather your your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus prays to his Father. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I pray for them. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knelt in prayer and being in anguish, he prayed earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Esther risked her life to plead for her people. Jesus gives up his life to deliver his. In the cross he confronts the powers and authorities of the dominion of darkness and does away with the accusation and condemnation of our adversary and enemy. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and he reconciled all things whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth by his blood shed on the cross. He defeats our enemy and delivers his people by his death on the cross. Thirdly, the privilege and the pain of belonging to the people of God. Peter's first letter, 1 Peter, is full of the paradox of belonging to the people of God. There is immense privilege. Peter uses this kind of language, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, precious to God, living stones being built into a dwelling for his spirit a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Immense privileges secured by the death of Jesus. But the same letter makes clear that those who belong to the crucified Saviour will live in the shadow of the cross. Now you suffer grief in all kinds of trials, Peter says falsely accused of doing wrong, having abuse heaped upon you. Jesus said to his disciples, they would be hated without reason and have trouble in the world. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. There is great privilege in belonging to the people of God. I hope you can see That The Bible doesn't think in the highly individualistic way that we do. It's not a matter of uh, getting saved and coming to church on Sunday if it isn't too much trouble. God has a plan to save a people for himself to be his treasured possession. But the immense privilege of this is founded on the rescue of the cross and is lived in the pattern of the cross. Christ died for the world and his people live in sacrificial and servant ways for the sake of the world he died for. So lastly, blessing the nations. Esther could have preserved her life by keeping silent. She could have saved her life by trading the king's favor towards uh, by trading on the king's favor towards her as queen by putting the interests of her people ahead of her own she risked the possibility that she could lose everything but in the event god delivered her and her people but god's people are not always delivered not in the bible and not in the 20th century since Pentecost. And yet those who inherit the kingdom are precisely those who are willing to risk life for the sake of faithfulness to the Lord and his people. Not only those who are already his, but those who are yet to be called. So Paul says, do good to all and especially the household of faith. And Hebrews says, remember, you stood side by side with those who were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Days are coming, I think, and perhaps are already with us when Christian leaders and Christian people, fallible humans, will be exposed to public insult. Will we stand with them or join the choruses of condemnation? Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We live to bless the nations. We are the sons of Abraham and God has promised to bring his blessing to the nations as we proclaim the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Caring for the brothers and sisters persecuted and attacked. Serving the pagans to win them over as Peter calls them. Not valuing most highly my comfort, my reputation, my security, but valuing what God values, his people redeemed by his son and yet to be gathered from the four corners. God's people live for this. Esther did not neglect the welfare of her people. Jesus laid down his life while we were his enemies, God's people live to bless the nations until we see the blessing of God overflow to the ends of the earth until we are gathered around the throne of the Lamb, a crowd too great to number from every tribe and language and people who live to praise our son, uh, his son our Savior. Amen.